to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 26. At that time, declares Yahweh, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says Yahweh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, Yahweh appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of, merry, of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and, enjoy, and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when the watchmen call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to Yahweh our God. For thus says Yahweh, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Yahweh, save your remnant, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor, together a great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel." And Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of Yahweh, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For Yahweh has ransomed Jacob, and he has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of Yahweh, over the grain, the wine, and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says Yahweh, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares Yahweh, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares Yahweh, and your children shall come back to their own country. I've heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are Yahweh my God. For after I had turned away, I relented and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares Yahweh. 
Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, once more shall they use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. Yahweh bless you, O, inhabitant, o, o habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of all comfort. There is none to be had except that which is in you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if you are against us, what does it matter who is for us? And praise be to you, That in grace and mercy, comfort has been extended in Christ. Forgive us when we take it elsewhere. And forgive us when we fail to receive that which you've extended. And would rather wallow in our misery. So speak now your precious promises anew and afresh to us by your Spirit and mercy and grace. Speak to them. Speak of them to us in Christ. And grant us rest and peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Essential to a rested body is a rested soul. If the soul is not at peace, the body does not easily find rest. And this means that the saints then will experience both unease and peace in this life. Augustine said, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you and because because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So rest is sought by man and rest is found in Christ and yet the rest found in Christ will leave one restless. There's rest found in Christ, but it's a rest that will leave one restless. In Christ, we find rest, and we find that there is a rest yet to come. And so for this reason, we lament, we cry, come Lord Jesus. It's not that we're discontent in Christ, but that we're content with nothing less than Christ, and we want Christ in full. And we'll be satisfied with nothing less. And here's the really glorious thing. The gloriously upside down thing about all of this. Is that this hope. This longing. This unmet desire. 
when believed, is what grants us peace and contentment in this age before those promises are fully realized. So trusting in that promise in this age, this kind of discontent that we have as we long for that very promise is what leads to us having a kind of contentment inside of our discontentment. In Christ, our discontent with this world is met with a contentment in Him, knowing the fullness of everything that's promised in Him is sure, even though it is not yet a reality. In Christ, our restlessness in this world coincides with our finding rest in Christ before everything we have in Him is realized. And I believe subtly, Jeremiah gets at this in this passage. The aim of this passage, you'll see, is comfort. And Jeremiah himself personally demonstrates the comfort that the people of God are to have in his finding rest here. A rest is promised, and in this rest promised, Jeremiah finds rest in the present. The rest that the people of God are to find too. The opening, chap- the opening verse of chapter 31 not only introduces what follows, it acts as a bridge connecting it to what came before. At that time. That time is the distress of chapter 30 and verse 7. The distress which they're delivered out of. Chapter 30 and verse 8. That time is verse 24 of chapter 30. The latter days in which they have understanding. So in these latter days of understanding, these days that are coming to pass, these, this day of deliverance, in that day, God will be their God and they will be His people. This is the most concise way to get at the core of covenant. What, what does it mean to be in covenant with God? He is their God. They are His people. And emphatically, this covenant is made with all the clans of Israel. Jeremiah's ministry has been to Judah, but at this point, an abundance of Israel language comes out. Virgin Israel, verse 4. Mountains of Samaria, verse 5. Samaria being the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. The hill country of Ephraim, verse 6. Verse 18, verse 20. Jacob and the remnant of Israel, verse 7. Israel and Ephraim, verse 9. Israel, verse 10. Jacob, verse 11. Now all all this Israel stuff, sometimes I believe refers to the nation as a whole. Jacob, the 12 tribes, every one of them before they split under Rehoboam. So all Israel means all Israel. And sometimes I think it's clear it's referring to the northern kingdom. Uh, the, the tribes that split off from the southern kingdom comprised largely of Judah and Benjamin. We do read of several instances of the faithful who migrated from northern kingdoms to come, from the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, to come and be part of Judah. But for the most part, uh, many of these instances are referring to the northern kingdom, those tribes that separated. 
Jeremiah is focused on Judah, and now we have all these promises concerning the north. And all this emphasis on Israel shouldn't be understood, though, as to exclude Judah, but to speak of the fullness of what's being promised to Judah. These are not to the exclusion of Judah, but to the fullness of Judah. Israel has virtually disappeared. Whenever she was carried away captive to various places by the Assyrians, she was largely assimilated by those nations. They lost their unique identity as the people of God. She's virtually disappeared. So these promises of restoration then first assume, as it were, resurrection and then reunion and then restoration. So these promises are spoken to Judah, presupposing a resurrection and a reunion to the purpose of this restoration that lies ahead. It's speaking of something of the redemption God is promising to to Judah specifically, coming in such fullness that all Israel is gathered and assembled to worship Him again. Now the next two verses, verses 2 and 3, introduce a motif that runs through the remainder of the chapter. It's the major theme of the chapter, the Exodus. And so the first thing is, as you're looking at verses 2 and 3, is you're wondering, do these refer to the Exodus verses 2 and 3 only? The rest of it, you get the sense. It's all future. But do verses 2 and 3 refer to the future or the past? Do they concern Egypt or do they concern Babylon? And your first thought is, well, you got all the past tense. It's got to be Egypt. The people who survived, they found grace. They sought for rest. Yahweh appeared. He loved. He continued. So all this past tense makes you think, well, this has to be referring to the original Exodus, Egypt. But then you remember very often, we've seen it in Jeremiah already, what's called the prophetic perfect. The prophets will speak of the future as though it's already past, which emphasizes its certainty. It will happen. And and you notice then two things about this passage that I think emphasize this lies ahead. And the first one is that Yahweh appears to them from far away. From far away. Remember, the people of... With with what happened in Egypt... um, they were, they've been there for 400 years. This idea of being separated from God, they never really had the promised land. They were wanderers all that time. But now with them being taken captive away into Babylon, they were being removed from His presence, covenantally. God is omnipresent, He's everywhere, but they were being removed from His presence covenantally. And now He's appearing to them from far away. Now it's true, from far away can be some translations you might have it, from long ago. That's a legitimate rendering, but I don't think it fits the whole emphasis of the message of Jeremiah or this passage as well, that from far away, Yahweh's appearing to them, especially when you you add the next phrase, that He survived, this is the people who have survived the sword. That imagery doesn't work well in capturing what happened with Egypt. But it's a metaphor that's used again and again concerning their dealings with Babylon. They survived the sword. They survived conquest. For instance, Jeremiah 51, 49 through 50. 
Babylon, Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel. You notice the same kind of language here. It's referring to Judah as Israel. Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel, just as for Babylon have fallen the slain of all the earth. You who have escaped from the sword, do go, do not stand still. Remember Yahweh from far away. So you get the idea, this is calling for them to return. Oh, let me finish. And let Jerusalem come into your mind. Remember Yahweh from far away. You're in Babylon. Remember Him from far away. Go. Don't be still. What's the call? Go back near Israel. Go back. So I think that's the passage in Jeremiah that makes the most sense of what's happening and being called for here. A second exodus is being promised. Israel, we're told, seeks for rest. And you remember it was promised in the previous chapter, no, chapter 29, verses 12 through 14, that whenever they seek Him, they will find Him when they seek Him with their whole heart. So Israel is seeking for rest, and Yahweh appears from far away. The original Exodus was set up in near identical terms to what's being spoken of here. They find this because Yahweh loves them with an everlasting covenant love. He's remembering covenant. Now listen to Exodus 2, 23-25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help they sought. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The people of God cry out, they seek, they find, God remembers covenant. Now this second Exodus motif is played on most heavily by Isaiah. So go to the last chapters of Isaiah and again and again you will see this this imagery of a second Exodus. For instance, maybe the most... Uh, memorable use of this metaphor is Isaiah 43 through 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. You see the kind of Sinai imagery, God's glory being revealed in the wilderness, calling for repentance. But Jeremiah's use of the second Exodus imagery most resembles that of Hosea. Hosea used the same metaphor. And Hosea, that it's Hosea that he most resembles in how he speaks of it is striking because Hosea's ministry was focused on the northern kingdom of Israel. For instance, Hosea 2, 14-23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
And there I will give her her vineyards. And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know Yahweh. And in that day I will answer, declares Yahweh, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will no more, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So think of Judah hearing this, hearing this language from Jeremiah who's been their prophet. Israel is virtually gone. Now Jeremiah is speaking this language, the second Exodus language that Hosea used concerning Israel. They've seen their kinsmen taken away. They've seen them assimilated into all these nations. And all those promises to Israel are now being spoken of in a way that includes them as well. If there was cause with Israel having been assimilated into these nations, if there was cause now that they're being taken captive to doubt, God is, God is calling for them to realize His plan for His covenant people Has not been forgotten. And just as with Hosea. One of the ways. That the depth of his covenant love is brought out. Is by the terms. With which he refers to her. And Hosea you are. I will say to not my people. You are my people. And here. He refers to her as. O virgin Israel. The only way she can be referred to this w- in this way is not because of anything she's done. In fact, it's despite everything she's done. The only reason Israel can be referred to this way is not because of her covenant faithfulness, but because of God's covenant faithfulness. And the results of God's continued covenant, covenant faithfulness to her are that Verse 4, she will again be built up. She'll again be built up as she was under David and Solomon. She will again adorn herself with tambourines and dance. She'll do this again as Miriam, you remember, led the women to dance in the Exodus? Or consider the women who led and dance 
and, and with the tambourines whenever the ark was being brought to the city of David. She will again plant vineyards and enjoy the fruit. Verse 5. And she will do this because there will come a day, verse 6, because for there shall be a day when the watchmen of the hill country of Ephraim call for them to arise and go to Zion and worship God. So the watchmen are not crying out as they had done previously in warning of destruction, but as a call to worship. They're not calling for the people to flee to Jerusalem for safety, but to arise and go there to celebrate. And you remember in chapter 6 and verse 17, the watchman was a metaphor for the prophets who were warning the people. And I think the metaphor is still intended here. The prophets are not saying, look out, because of the threat that's coming. They are saying, arise and go to Zion and celebrate. And that the salvation of Israel is not to the exclusion of Judah, but to her fullness is made apparent in that they arise and they go to Zion. The people in Ephraim, northern kingdom, Israel, go to the southern kingdom. They return to the temple of Yahweh to worship Him. Again, again, again. Again they shall be built up. Again they will adorn themselves and dance. Again they will plant and enjoy their fruit because there is coming a day when there will be a call for the people of God to assemble in Zion and worship. And that Israel is said to do so. That it, that's so emphatic here, I think is speaking that there is something miraculous. There is something mysterious. There is something epic that's going to happen on that day. Yes, there's an again, 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 again here, but it's an again that's not even equal to, not less than, it's far greater than anything that's preceded it. The again means there's a return to the bud, but it's a bud that's coming into fullness and bloom and glory. And then you consider what Paul speaks of, of how we have been grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And following that, in Romans eleven twenty five through 27, he says, Lest you, you Gentiles who've been grafted in, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, in both Israel's hardening partially until the Gentiles come in. So it, this, in this way, including both the Gentiles coming in and grafted in, and there being some kind of goal concerning Israel with their being grafted in and a date until, there's a hardening that happens until then. So Israel coming, the tree itself blooming naturally, and those all parts intended being grafted in. And in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved. All Israel. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, 
when I take their sins, take away their sins. You sing that your part of the second exodus, all the people of God being gathered to assemble for worship at the heavenly Zion. There are times in this life where we were graced to drink deeply and sense something of this. You get a sense of God gathering His people to worship Him. You get a taste. Every Sunday should be an experience of that. But there are times when it's just profound. It's thick. Or you read in church history where God draws near to His people. And in profound ways works among them. What I'm zealous for you to see here is that there's this promise of again, again, again. And I don't want you to look back on any of those episodes with a kind of forlorn hope as if there will never be anything like that again. No, the promise that comes here again and again is not just something that's a shadow of that. Not less than that. The fullness of this lies ahead of us. Saints, not less but more are being gathered. The kingdom of God is like leaven that God hid. And it grows. It's like a mustard seed. That's so small when he planted it, but it becomes the largest. He turns their mourning to dancing, verses 7 through 14. The 4 of verse 7 seems to give the reason as to why the watchmen call for them to arise and go. It's because God has commanded, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. What does it mean that she's chief of the nations? To put it perhaps as strikingly as possible, it means she's privileged. Amos 6.1 calls her the first of the nations. She is privileged and this privilege is owing to nothing in and of herself. All is of grace. Deuteronomy 7 explains, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that Yahweh set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I love the logic here. It's not... Because of you that Yahweh set His love upon you, but it's because Yahweh loves you. He loves you because He loves you. It's not because of you that He chose you, but it is because of His covenant in which He has bound Himself that He chose you. 
God's gracious and sovereign election has made her what she is, and it's completely grace. Deuteronomy 26, 18 through 19, Yahweh has declared today that you are a people for His treasured possession as He has promised you, and that you are to keep all His commandments, and that He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all. All the nations that He has made. That you shall be a holy, a people holy to Yahweh your God. As He promised. This is why David exclaimed. There is none like you, O Yahweh. And there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Making for yourself a name for great and awesome things. In driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. It's because the thrice holy God set his love upon them. That they are holy, set apart and distinct from all other peoples. And church, this is your lineage. This is your heritage. This is your blessed, gracious privilege in Christ. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It is something to be humbled by. But it's not something to be ashamed of. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2. And this truth, properly digested, does not cause us to boast in arrogance over our neighbor, but rather to cry out with shouts of dependence. Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, now what does the chief of nations say? What does this holy people set apart from others exclaim? Oh, Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. No boast, complete dependence, save your people. And He will lead them back. He will gather them from the north country, from the farthest parts of the earth. He'll gather them all, the blind, the lame, the pregnant woman, the one who is in labor, the point of those images are the ones you'd expect to be left behind, they're brought along. He'll lead them back with pleas of mercy. They will come with weeping, verse 9. They come with weeping because He's leading them with pleas of mercy. 2 Timothy 2.25 makes plain that repentance is a gift God gives. Acts 2.25, excuse me, Acts 5.31 explains how that happens. God exalted Jesus at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus was exalted so that repentance might be gifted, so that God could lead his people back with pleas of mercy such that they come back. Weeping repentantly. You're not told here that God brings them back because they're repentant. Repentance is how God brings them back. And it's a gift given in the new covenant, Lord Jesus Christ. Further, God will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, verse 9. And this speaks to both to God's providence and their obedience. So remember the second Exodus imagery. He causes them to walk by brooks of water. As they're going through this return trip, He's making them walk by brooks of water. So think of the rocks being struck and God providing water in the wilderness. But this time, they will not, there will be no stumbling for mumbling. This time, there will be no idolatry because they will walk in the straight path. They will walk obediently. And the reason God does this is because He's father to Israel. Verse 9, Ephraim is his firstborn. This language of firstborn is again recalling the Exodus. This was the reason Moses was given for Pharaoh as to why he was to let the people go. Exodus 4.22 You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. So now we've got this firstborn who's being brought back. And this again causes, if, whenever you start realizing what Jeremiah is doing and, and all this Israel language and its roots in Hosea as well as ex, the Exodus. You might think of it, Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I called him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. It's peculiar that the New Testament picks up on that verse from Hosea 11.1 concerning Israel and her unfaithful past. Considering his redemption of her, calling her out of Egypt, and then her unfaithfulness, that the New Testament picks up on that and links it to Christ and his not failure, but success. So Israel the Son failed as God called her out of Egypt. And now we have Jesus the Son who succeeds as he's called out of Egypt. Matthew tells us that Joseph was warned in a dream concerning Herod's. Plans to kill the children. And so Joseph flew to Egypt. And it says, Matthew 2, 13 through 15, that that happened to fulfill Hosea 11.1. But what is there in Hosea 11.1 that has any reference to the future? And the answer is, Hosea, Hosea, as a book, anticipates a second exodus along with Jeremiah and Isaiah. 
So Matthew looks at what's being spoken of in Hosea 11.1 and understands that the first exodus was an image and a shadow of something more to come. And he sees it being fulfilled with Christ. And he sees where the firstborn failed and God has raised up a substitute, His only begotten, to succeed everywhere she failed. He doesn't succeed to make us look bad. He succeeds to make us look good. He is the true firstborn son. Clothing us with his righteousness, we're gathered back to the father. Adopted as sons in the only begotten son. And so then, a word is to go forward to the nations. Hear the word. Of Yahweh, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And the reason is because he's ransomed Jacob, he's redeemed him from hands too strong from him, verse 11. Again, this is recalling the Exodus. Exodus 6, 6, with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, we're told that God redeemed his people. All the language of redemption and ransom is rooted in the Exodus, specifically in the final act of judgment to fall in their deliverance. Israel was redeemed not just by judgment, she was redeemed from judgment. She was not immune from the final wonder to fall on them, the death of the firstborn. What the difference between she and Egypt was not that she's immune from judgment and, and judgment is due on Egypt. The difference is that with Israel, he provided a substitute. He provided a lamb. He provided redemption, purchasing them from that which they deserved. So immediately following the Passover and all the instructions given thereabout, following that, as far as the narrative is concerned, in Exodus 13, instructions are given for the redemption of the firstborn in perpetuity. And if you, if you have an animal, it's to be offered up to God. Firstborn of, of every animal, offered up to God. But if it's an unclean animal, say a donkey, you can't offer that up. So you either offer a lamb in its place, and the language is you redeem it. You put a lamb in its place or you break the donkey's neck. There has to be death. Death of the donkey or death of a substitute. But you can't do this with a son. He instructs them, every son you will redeem with a lamb. That interprets what's happening with the Exodus. How, why does the nation, the firstborn, belong to God? Because he redeemed her. The, the firstborn stands in place representing every family. Why are they his? Because he purchased them by a substitute from the judgment they deserve to be his own. So, step back. You see this? Word is to go forward to the nations declaring God will gather his people that he's purchased by redemption. And... He'll keep them like a shepherd. Do you not hear Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. He will bring them back with weeping. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And the result of this is that they will come and they'll gather in Zion to sing. They'll sing aloud on the heights of Zion, verse 12. They'll be radiant over the goodness and blessings of God. They will not languish, be like a watered garden. The women will rejoice and dance. The young and old men be merry, verse 13. Their mourning shall be turned for joy, turned to joy, and God will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow, verse 13. And the priest will feast and the people be satisfied with goodness. If you've got the idea of all the feast of the Old Testament being fasts, you've missed them. The Day of Atonement was said to be a solemn day when they will afflict their souls. But all the others are feasts. They're celebrations. Seven times Deuteronomy concerning these feasts and their gathering to Jerusalem gives the command, you shall rejoice. So for instance, the Feast of First Fruits, they're to recall how God brought them out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey and offering up of all the goodness God has given to them, offering up a sacrifice of praise and worship while they themselves are enjoying the harvest in the biggest feast they would really have, perhaps, outside of weddings. We're at these celebrations. So Deuteronomy 26.11 concerning the Feast of first fruits, You shall rejoice in all the good that Yahweh your God has given you and your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Rejoice in the goodness. You're offering it up and you're also eating part of these, these offerings that you're giving up. Celebrate God's goodness. Saints, the abundance, the goodness, the fullness of, of God's blessing lies ahead of us in exceeding glory. Know that Yahweh will gather His people and we will be radiant over it. Over it in its fullness because of the Lamb who has ransomed and redeemed us. All mourning shall be turned to joy His He will comfort us. He will give us gladness for sorrow. And it's this idea of comfort that then bridges us into the next section, verses 15 through 20. This is where I think you really see the point where this passage is meant to take you is to this kind of comfort. In the same way in chapter 30, you had this command, do not fear, that really served to help you understand what God was wanting all the promises to do in His people, here, in the same way, this this idea of comfort gets at it. So chapter 30, do not fear. Chapter 31, be comforted. But sometimes, a soul in its misery and distress does not want to take any comfort. But comfort is held out here by Yahweh. It's held out to uh, Israel and as she's personified in two ways. First, as a mourning mother, verses 15 through 17, and then a 
sorrowful son, verses 18 through 20. So this lamentation goes up from Rama. Rachel is refusing to be comforted because she's lost her children. Rama was very likely used as a staging place for the captives to then be taken the rest of the way to Babylon. It's five miles north of Jerusalem, so they take them to Rama, they get them organized, and they take them from there on to Babylon. Rachel refuses to be comforted for these lost children. She's personified as a mourning mother having lost her children. Rachel, you remember, was the wife of Joseph who gave birth to the wife of Jacob who gave birth to Joseph who then becomes the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim being the most prominent tribe of the northern kingdom. And she also gives birth to Benjamin in which Rama is located. She longed for children. Her story is one of longing for children. And then tragically, at the birth of her second born, after hard labor, she dies. And she becomes this iconic image of the forlorn mother, this mourning mother, this this sorrowful woman. And Yahweh extends comfort to her. Verse 16. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, for your labor. Remember whenever Rachel was in this hard labor, the midwife tried to comfort her saying, Do not fear, for you have another son. Matthew 2.18, following right on the hills of speaking about how Hosea 11.1 was fulfilled in Jesus being taken to Egypt to be called out of there, right on the hills of that, it speaks of the murder of those Hebrew children. As in the Exodus, Pharaoh killing the Hebrew children, and now Herod murdering the children in Bethlehem. And it tells us this was to fulfill verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. But as so often in the New Testament, they want you to understand the larger context of these verses that they're, they're bringing into play. Here's Israel mourning and weeping as Rachel for her children that have been lost. But God is extending comfort. Israel has given birth to a son, a firstborn, the only begotten. Rachel, as she was dying, named her son Ben-Onai, meaning son of my sorrow. Jacob changes his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. And now this comfort that's been given to the nation is both a man of sorrows and the one who's exalted to God's right hand. And so, for this reason, verse 17, there's hope for her future. The children shall come back to her own country. And then from this mother grieving, we have a son grieving, Ephraim, verse 18. He's been disciplined. 
And the discipline is bringing him back. He's ashamed and confounded. He's born the disgrace of his youth. And so the prodigal turns home and he finds the father every bit as welcoming as in Jesus' parable. Because as often as the father speaks against him, verse 20, he remembers. God never spoke a word of judgment against Israel in which he was not remembering his covenant with Israel. Indeed, all his words of judgment were a remembering of covenant. The father yearns for his son, and thus he will surely have mercy on him. Jesus promised, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In your sin, in your misery, even now before you enter into the fullness of these promises, be comforted in the truths of the gospel and the fullness of all that's promised therein. These truths come to Israel in her distress and they were both to move her heart in repentance and to comfort her that they would surely become a reality. And words of comfort continue to come in the next section, verses 21 through 25, as Yahweh tells them to mark the way by which they leave because you're going to come back. Pick out all the landmarks. Pick out all the signs. Note well as you're leaving the way by which you go because I'm going to bring you back. Yahweh, with their departure, also booked the return flight. True, it was for 70 years later, but it will not be canceled. And so I think the rebuke to the Israel wavering in unbelief, how long will you waver, O faithless daughter, it, it's spoken of as, it, as it's concerning the future, but I think it's aimed at the present. For Yahweh has created a new thing. They're not to waver in hope of this deliverance coming. Because of this new thing, which Jeremiah will go on and speak of as a new covenant. But here it's spoken in the most mysterious and enigmatic of terms. A new thing. What is this new thing? A woman encircles a man. This is really vague, it's not elaborated on, and so as you can imagine, there are a host of interpretations. Most of them, not worth anything. The only modern one that I think really has any value is the idea that a woman encircling a man is referring to Israel clinging to her covenant Lord. But the word encircling here is really potent. It's a very masculine kind of act. It involves protection and surrounding. It's an act that God does for His bride. It's an act of a husband for his wife, not of a wife for her husband. Most modern scholars write off, even evangelical solid ones write off, an ancient patristic interpretation of this text that I don't think they're necessarily wise to do so. I think the mysterious wording of this, a woman encircling a man, is perhaps best interpreted by another instance where the same kind of odd phrasing is used of a woman doing something that's very masculine or something very masculine associated with her. A woman encircling a man? Well, remember, the original preaching of the gospel spoke of the seed of the woman. Well, the seed's always masculine. It's always the, the, the male is the one who has the seed, The seed of the woman? And then you consider the creation language we have here. 
Remember how the seed reference is used all throughout the creation narrative, each having its seed in itself and so forth? Take into account how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in language that is reminiscent of creation. The same way that the Spirit of God was over the waters, the Spirit is over Mary's womb. And then the same striking verb that's used in Genesis 1.1. It's a verb that only... God gets His own verb. The word for create in Genesis 1.1 is only used throughout the Scripture concerning things God does. Man never uses... There's a kind of creation man does, but he always has to use created stuff. God does creation in a way that no one else does creation. And that word is used right here. So you've got all these, this language that recalls creation. And it's used again, evoked in the birth of our Lord. I think a woman encircling a man here speaks to the virgin conception of our Lord. At which new creation finds its genesis. And then following this once more. The land of Judah and its cities. The land which Yahweh has said again and again. He will make a curse. Now we see them pronouncing blessings on it. Verse 23. And so they'll dwell in the land. And and the weary soul God will satisfy. And the languishing soul he will replenish. Verse 25. And this future satisfaction and this future replenishing seems to overflow onto Jeremiah in the present. At this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. It's as though he's astonished. I had a good night's rest. Imagine how many restless nights Jeremiah likely had anticipating the doom and destruction that are to come upon the nation that have again and again not heeded his warnings. But now he has a dream. He so often rebuked the dreams of the false prophets. But this one's true. And this one's from God. And he wakes up and he's replenished. He's refreshed. He's had a good night's sleep. Remember where we started? Verse 2. Israel sought for rest. And Yahweh appeared to her. And Jeremiah receiving this word from God in a dream. Of Israel longing for rest and finding it wakes up. Rested. What's God been telling his people? Take comfort. Jeremiah Awakes refreshed, having been comforted. This is the effect the promises of God should have upon the people of God in days of distress and darkness. Knowing His promises of restoration and refreshment of again and yet again in fullness and glory unsurpassed are absolutely certain. Sure, the future rest should spill over into the present as it's believed. Perhaps the best way to drive home that that's the proper response is to go back to Isaiah 40 and read it in its fuller context. Isaiah 41 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Why will this happen? Because Yahweh has spoken. What was Jeremiah's ministry? To speak the word, knowing that Yahweh is looking over his word to perform it, both to pluck up and to plant. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord Yahweh comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. Saints, there is a rest that remains for the people of God. Take comfort in that rest now in this age that is fading away. It is all grass, but the word of Yahweh will endure. Sinner. John the Baptist came as one crying in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord, preaching a message of repentance and calling for souls to look to Christ as the Lamb of God in whom there is redemption by His blood. There is no comfort, there is no peace, there is no rest anywhere else than in Christ. But believe on Him, the crucified and risen Lord who is at the right hand of the Father, and hear His promise. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we confess That far too often, the absurdity of this, far too often, that which is fading away is more present on our hearts and our minds than that new thing that you are doing right now by the blood of Jesus and gathering your bride, than that new thing that is enduring and settled on your word. Your breath will blow away all this world and establish a new one. That's already started with a woman encircling a man. 
And that child being created out of seemingly nothing. Who's been exalted, resurrected, seated at your right hand. Father, may that, may that be our our focus, our love, our desire, our longing. May it be our ever-present comfort. May we not waver in faithlessness. But taking comfort, may we be faithful and endure by your promise, by your word. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.